Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the BV podcast for March 2023, in which we bring you more great stories of Dorset rural and village life. I'm Jenny Devitt. And welcome from me, Terry Bennett. In this episode, the ever-entertaining and knowledgeable Roger Guttridge tells us of three interesting events in Dorset's past, and also reveals his smuggling ancestry. You can hear my interview with David Cracklin, director of the AJC Group, about their recently acclaimed development in Hazelbury Bryan. And naturalist and regular BV contributor Jane Adams talks about bee flies and her new book. Roger Guttridge is a regular and popular contributor to the BV online magazine. He's an amazing fount of knowledge on Dorset local history and folklore, and never fails to find something fascinating to write about. It's been his interest, apparently, since childhood. Well, kind of since childhood, yes, because it really started with the school projects, you know. I was at Blanford Grammar School in 1967, and we had to do a local history project on a subject of my choice. And my mother suggested that I talk to my grandfather, Jim Ryder, out of Fiddleford, um, because he would tell me stories about our ancestors, the Rideout. My mother was a Rideout, you see. Um, the Rideouts of Oak Fitzpain, who used to store their contraband at Fiddlehood Mill. That school project led to my first two published articles, which were published in the fourth issue of what is now Dorset Life magazine, but 1968 <laughs> that came out, which was just about the time I left school. Uh, and also the 1968-69, I think it was, Dorset yearbook, um, two different pieces. That, in turn, helped me to get a job as a trainee reporter on the Western Gazette and led to my first book, Dorset Smugglers, which was published in 1983, um, and also to my first public speaking engagements which I arranged in order to promote that book and I've done that my I do a talk called my family and other smugglers which I've done for I've been doing for over 40 well 40 years almost exactly um, and I, I reckon I've done it over 2,000 times to an audience is totaling tens of thousands so, um, so, and so yeah that started it all off really and and then when I became a journalist I was kind of always had an interest in history and while I was working for the Bournemouth Daily Echo in the 80s, a new editor came in and uh, asked me to start writing regular historical columns. And I've been writing them ever since. And I've I've written historical columns for, well, one, oh, at least probably seven, eight different Dorset publications <laughs> over the years. So, so Roger, really was something of a gift that you happen to have um, smuggling in, in mm. your background. Yes, I mean, I owe my criminal ancestors a great deal. <laughs> but of course, you know, we do have this very romantic idea about smugglers, don't we? But um, I'm sure that they were not uh, a particularly nice bunch of people on the whole at all, excepting your family, of course. Not in my family either, no. My second book was Dorset Murders, and I was researching that at the National Archives in London <clears throat> in 1986. And I came across brief details of a murder trial at the Dorset County Assizes in 1781 
uh, in which three of the four defendants were my five times great-grandfather Roger Rideout, the leader of the smuggling gang, his wife Mary and her eldest son William Rideout. But they were acquitted actually, so not guilty, but I got a feeling where the smoke was fire, you know. Um, <laughs> Perhaps so, the, uh, the magistrate liked to purchase uh, things from your um, well, th this ancestor of yours. Without a doubt, because one of the legends my grandfather told me was that they used to um, leave tubs of smuggled brandy on the doorstep of uh, Mr Dashwood down in Penny Street, Stumpster Newton, um, who was on the local bench, and um, basically as a bribe, uh, which he happily accepted. <laughs> but but my my smuggling, my, I mean, my main smuggling ancestor, Roger Rideout, who is my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Um, he pops up all over the place, as well as those Dorset Assize Court records in 1781. Paul Customs records in 1770 recorded that Isaac Gulliver, William Beale and Roger Rideout run great quantities of goods on the shore at Bournemouth and Poole. Um, 1787, he's listed in the Dorchester prison records for smuggling, and amazingly was released after just two weeks by paying a £40 fine. £40 in 1787 was a small fortune, really. Um, and that does the fact that he paid it within two weeks does rather suggest that he was doing quite well on the smuggling front because it certainly does. It had mm. a lot, lot of money, so uh, especially to find it in in such a short space of time, and and that was in the seventeen hundreds. Which is, um, if we look at the uh, the three of your contributions to this month's BB magazine, um, that was when this uh, nonconformist preacher was was around as well. The seventeen hundreds. Oh, the Reverend John Sprint. Yes, I, I like his name actually. But yes, I mean he 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 was an interesting character in that he managed to upset the women's livers um, a couple of hundred years ahead of schedule, or even nearly three hundred years really. Um, he was a colourful cleric based at Storbridge initially, but in a sermon in preached in Sherborne in um, he was a non-conformist minister I should say, but he basically preached that um the uh, that women had a duty that the the duty incumbent on all married women to be extraordinarily careful to content and please their husbands which of course i sign up to as well that's a commendable thought no i'm only <laughs> no joking. you don't surely roger <laughs> <laughs> man after my own heart no not at all <laughs> i wouldn't even if it were i wouldn't dare say it today but um but this was in 1699 and he managed to upset quite a few ladies even back then and um, they mounted a sterling defence which came in the form of a poem called The Lady's Defence or A Bride Woman's Counselor Answered which took the form of a dialogue in verse between Sir John Brute, Sir William Lovell, Melissa and a parson. And the parson was cast as the villain and he speaks of teaching women Quote, their husbands to obey and please, and to their humours sacrifice their ease, give up their reason and their wills resign, and every look and thought combine, confine, I should say. Uh, well, but it, it appears to have been quite a successful counter-attack because um, it, it does look from what you've written in your article as if he rather changed his tune after that. Uh, well, it, he was he was drummed out of Storbridge, I think. 
<laughs> and turned up at Melbourne Port, where he's remembered as the founder of a grammar school and also of a non-conformist church meeting there. Um, but I don't know whether he was um, all that popular with the ladies. Although, it, I mean, it seemed to have turned in quite a fun thing, really, because their response was tongue-in-cheek, but it made the point, and, and it was quite humorous, really. So, but he he was giving he was take texts from the Bible and and use it to um to to stand up his um, sermons yeah stand up for his own personal beliefs no doubt and and you yeah. also write about um, a really uh, a pretty barbaric practice which went on in the seventeen hundreds and and maybe before then in Marnell bull baiting. Bull baiting, yeah, you don't hear much of that here. It sounds rather more of a Spanish thing, doesn't it, really? Um, although in this case, I think the bull survived, but not all the people survived. Um, but it was a, an annual attraction held every May the 3rd in Marnell. And eventually it was put a stop to by the vicar in about 16, sorry, 1762 or so. But they used to bring the bulls in for, for baiting. Um rather like bear baiting, you know, <laughs> cockfighting, that kind of thing. Um, and all those things went on in those days. But apparently it became more dangerous, really, for the public than it was for the bull. Um, and, and people came from villages for miles around, and there were rival gang, rival village gangs in those days. And uh, they would always end up with dangerous riots and bloodshed. And on one occasion, a chap called Bartlett... Um, was killed and it was suppressed for some years but revived again following a, um, a sponsorship by an MP in the House of Commons. Yes, and, I was uh, interested to see that, Roger. I was wondering yeah, whether he was perhaps a Marnell resident. I don't think so because, um, no, I mean, I'm not as far as I'm aware. I mean, we're, we're totally indebted, well, totally reliant, really, for this story on Hutchins' history of Dorset from the 18th century that's the only source you know the only original source and he doesn't say any more about Wyndham except that he was patronising bull baiting in the House of Commons but then the Reverend Conyers Place the rector of Marnell had a further campaign and eventually in the 1760s succeeded in um, in suppressing it but it used to take place on Marnell Common and and then you also got another intriguing little story about the Toad Doctor of Pullum. Yeah, this is a bit strange, isn't it? I don't think there are many Toad Doctors around today, but he was called Doctor Buckland. I don't think he was a real doctor, but also, this was also something that happened in May, around eighteen thirty forty ish, and there was an, an annual gathering with people again coming from miles around to attend Doctor Buckland's fair. And its exact date was determined by the phases of the moon. And the doctor, dressed in white, was assisted by his three daughters, also dressed in white. Um, and they attended to his patients who came from far and wide. And his method was unusual, in that he kept toads, which he used to keep alive, and hung them under the clothing of his patients. And as long as the toads twitched and moved, the cure progressed. But we don't know what happened if the toad died because before the cure is complete, because that story has never been told. And, and I got that 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 one from the WI book, the Women's Institute, back in the thirties, 
published a lovely 1935 actually published a lovely little book called Dorset Up and Up Along and Down Along, um, which was anecdotes from WA branches all over Dorset. Um, that was one of those that caught my eye when I first read this book. Well, I'm not so many years ago. Not surprised that it caught your eye, but there was no doubt uh, as to the fate of the poor toads, uh, because uh, <laughs> he wouldn't have been offering a cure for their suffering being hung under people's clothing, would he? No, I wouldn't have thought so. Roger Guttridge. I'm joined today by David Cracklin, who is a director of the AJC Group. David, thank you firstly for joining us on the BV Magazine podcast. Thank you for having us, Terry. Good to speak to you. And first of all, can I ask you, a lot of people may not have heard of AJC. You've been involved, I know, in the Violet Cross development at Hazelbury, Brian. But just tell us a little bit about AJC, who you are and what you do. Sure, yeah. So we're a contracted developer based in Poole. Um, we used to be a small developer called AJ Developments. And then about five or six years ago, we took a, a sort of a right-hand turn, as it were, and moved into contracting for housing associations, local authorities and charities, uh, specialising in the affordable and social housing market. Um, and that's how we came across the Hazelbury Bryan site. Violet Cross, it's a brownfield site, mm-hmm. been derelict for eight years, mm-hmm. but you've got hold of it and done... 21 houses, I believe. Just tell us how you got involved in it and what the objectives were. Yeah, so prior to me joining this business, I was a surveyor by trade, a valuation and building surveyor, and I had done some valuation work for the previous developer of the site who were going to bring the forward the site for 17 houses, I believe, um, for open market and some employment barns. And then I moved, changed my life and turned up at AJC and spoke to that developer and said, well, look, we can grab hold of this and turn this into an affordable housing development, something that the village in North Dorset needs quite urgently. Um, And we had an end client in mind for it, which was, um, uh, it was Yarlington Housing Association at the time, which then merged into what became Abbey. So effectively, we we took it from the previous developer and tweaked the planning with the help of the local authority to an affordable housing development and got rid of the uh, employment barns and replaced those with some additional houses. And what was the local reaction to that? Was it, did you find that the parish council and the local community was supportive of that? Do you know what? They, they were. I don't think through the planning application stage, it was abundantly clear that we were going to go for 100% affordable because we just stuck to planning policy compliance on the scheme, which was 40% of the site was going to be for affordable. But uh, our, our business ethos is to, pro- to provide over and above the amount of affordable housing. So we go for 100% there. So to be honest, I don't think they were 100% aware it's going to end up like that. But I think there's sometimes affordable housing gets, gets a bad rep. And it's um, in reality, most of the units there are going to be for shared ownership sale. So there's a, as you know, there's a, a huge problem with um, house price increases in Dorset far outstripping wages. Well, across the country, that's been um, incrementally growing over the years. But specifically in our area, it's, it's quite a dramatic sort of 11 times salary is the average house price at the moment. So anything we can do to increase the amount of uh, shared ownership and social housing has got to be a, a good thing. So I think in short, I met with a head of the parish council there, Steve Mercer, who lives very close to the site, talked him through our plans and he seemed positive. And when we had the launch of the site, when we finished it about three weeks ago now, he came and joined us. And I think he was quietly happy, I'd like to say. <laughs> well, that's good. And uh, Tell us what you have then created. 21 houses, obviously, you, mm-hmm. I think 12 of them are shared ownership and the other nine are on affordable rents. What sort of houses yeah. are they? I think there's an eco angle to this as well, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lots, lots of, uh, we've got a, 
what's called a hibernaculum. We've got lots of homes for bees and bats and swifts and all that kind of stuff because we are at edge of the countryside here. We've got some lovely views over the, the fields of Hazelbury. So we had to be very mindful of um, looking after the ecology that was incumbent upon the site and actually increasing the, the biodiversity. So there is a, a biodiversity net gain across the site, which is which is very important. Um, but you're right, yeah, there's, there's uh, eight or nine rented and 12 or 13 shared ownership sale. They're all two and three bed semi-detached family houses. The design was quite a, a modern version of a, of, of a farm courtyard was the, what we were looking for. And I think largely that's, that's been achieved successfully. Uh, and it's looking good as much as an improvement on what was there. Are they now all occupied or in the process of being marketed? Yeah, there's a couple left for sale on a shared ownership basis, which people can go on to right, move and, and look up. As I say, we're doing it on behalf of clients. The, the housing association involved is called ABRI, so they are running the sales side of things. We were very much, Terry, we ran the, we ran the land purchase and um, planning side of things. And then we had the contract to build them for the housing association, but they they are the the owners and um, they'll be renting and selling those units themselves. I'm interested in what's in it for you, effectively. Uh, I mean, you've yep. decided to do this and got yourself a lot of good publicity from it, certainly. Sure. But profitability is normally the key aim of a housing developer. Has that been forsaken at all in the pursuit of what you've achieved here? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, and realistically, if we had stuck to the uh, the forty percent affordable housing and sold sixty percent, our margin would have been you know dramatically increased. But that's not the sole aim of the business. It's obviously a key and important aim of the business. We're driven by profit. We're also driven by um, a social mission here on the partnership side of this business. And for our own personal reasons, we we know that the affordable housing market is something that has struggled. I think last year, something like 21,000 social homes were lost across the country through uh, either the right to buy scheme or just through demolition of properties that were no longer fit for purpose. So I think we built something like, we built as a nation only 7,500 social rented homes last year, but lost 21,000. So there's a 14,000 net loss of social social homes last year across the country and 165,000 lost across the past decade. So it's pretty stark. Now, a rural community such as Hazelby Bryan, or we're also building in Oakford Fitzpain and Dorkshire itself. As I said earlier, Terry, the, the disparity between wages and affordability is, is growing all the time. So we're a company that is driven by profits we have to survive, but also by a, a social ethos as well. There's about 3,600 people on the Dorset Housing Register at the mm-hmm. moment. So there's clearly a need for, for plenty yeah. more of these. Uh, yeah. Why do you think more developers are not following your model here? Or do you think they might do? I think it's it's inevitable as the market corrects which is we're starting to see a slow correction at the moment i think a lot of more people will be and more developers will be increasing the amount of affordable housing they're doing because from a business point of view it provides provides certainty because we've got an end user an end purchaser if you like with it with the housing association or local authority so the margin is is less but there is certainty in in doing that model so i think we'll see a little bit more more when the market corrects but uh, let's be honest most developers are set up because they want to build and sell houses on the open market. That's not their, that's the way they, they run things. We just form slightly differently, we should we say. But there is a, a real need. The problem that's getting in the way at the moment, Terry, is the holdups in the planning system across, well, across the region and the country. Sure. I mean, that's fairly well documented, isn't it? But why do you think there is a reluctance on the part of some parish councils, I mean, a lot of parish councils give an initial thumbs down to social housing, only to then have it overturned on appeal, don't they? Why, why do you mm-hmm. think there's that reluctance in the first place? 
I think it I think it varies from from parish council to parish council. I, I think we've got to be sensitive to councillors' um, careers and political ambitions. And as you know, in Dorset next year, we have the uh, local elections next May, I think, in BCP, where we're, we're based in Paul, it's the local elections this, this year. And I think a lot of voters are, are frightened by the, the idea of social housing on their doorstep. And the word nimbyism gets thrown around quite a lot. But I think the reality is, as an industry, we don't market the positives of social housing as much as we should. And I think there is an ingrained fear that we're building sink estates as we were back in the 1960s, you know, hundreds of homes on the edge of a town, when in reality, that's not the case anymore. It's a, it's a There's a much wider gamut of people that qualify for social housing. And I think we as an industry have to do more. There's more work to be done in terms of allaying locals' fears and therefore uh, allowing parish councils to support what we're doing. Thank you for that. One final question while I've got you as a building developer on a slightly allied point. We don't tend to be very good in this country, or we haven't been in the past, building eco-friendly properties. I don't mean by that ones that, as you mentioned, support wildlife or don't interfere with wildlife, but Mm. ones that are just well insulated and relatively inexpensive to run. Why are we so bad at that and what are we doing about it? (laughs) Well, we're catching up with it. It's 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 like... It's like turning a big ship, Terry. You know, we've got to get the whole industry on board. It takes a long time for uptake of any of these things. We've got the new Partel building regs, which come in in June this year. That'll make a big difference. We're on a journey towards net zero by 2025. So it's taken an awful long time for that to bite. Uh, at the moment, if we the costs are outstripping what we're, what the return is. Uh, and But I think we're going in the right direction. We're doing a scheme for Paul Council in uh, at Herbert Avenue, which is 24 apartments, which is a passive housing scheme. And that's uh, effectively with a view to there being no heating costs whatsoever. So we're getting there. It's just taking an awful lot longer than any of us would like. David, many thanks for coming on and talking to us and many congratulations for what you've done in Hazelbury, Brian. It all sounds excellent. Thank you for your time, Terry. Thank you very much. Thank you. There are definitely increasing signs of spring in the air, are there not? And for naturalist and wildlife writer Jane Adams, one of the signs, when the weather's right of course, is seeing in her garden the diminutive and attractive bee fly. So please would she describe this good-looking member of the fly family? Well, bee flies, they are one of these strange little insects that when you first see them you think it's possibly a bumblebee. And you're likely to see them when you first go out into the garden in the spring, when you get a nice sunny day where the temperatures sort of top 17 degrees. And you'll see this little insect buzzing around and you think, oh, it's, it's, not, it's not quite a bumblebee. And when it lands, if it lands near to you and you can sort of see it a bit clearer, you realise that it has these ridiculously long legs and a ridiculously long proboscis out the front of its face which is actually its tongue which it sticks into the flowers to sup up the nectar and um, pollen um, so it's yeah I would say it's very much like a a fluffy bumblebee but when you see it closer you realize it isn't and Jane these are nectar feeders like so many of the insects we see in our garden are they Yes, they are. They're, I mean, it is, it's very much an insect. It isn't a bee, although it is called a bee fly. 
it likes the spring flowers that are um, have deep flowers like the primroses and um, cowslips and things like that. There may be some flowers in your garden that they would also um, nectar from, so sort of pulmonarias and things like that. So you will get them sort of hovering in front of the flowers like a little hummingbird, um, sticking their, their proboscis straight into the flower. You'd think, wouldn't you, that with a very long tongue like that, like you, as you've been describing, that they'd be feeding on something more like, I don't know, honeysuckle, a long blossom? Yeah, I think it's it's all to do with the, the time of year. So they are uh, an insect that comes out very early in the spring. So the ones that we tend to see in our garden, there's um, quite a common one called the dark-edged a bee fly which has when you see it when it's landed somewhere it has got a ziggy zaggy sort of um, pattern on its wings which is where it gets the dark edged bee fly name from um, and there is another one called a spotted bee fly as well which has sort of got po- polka dot dots all over its wings so they're they're the two that you see early in the spring which is why you probably wouldn't get them with the honeysuckle which it tends to be a flower that you get later in the year. So bee fly so called because they look a bit like a bumblebee? Yes I think so um, I think it's it's that sort of association with bees but they are a, a totally different insect so they it's just a likeness and they do they do have a buzz but they are very much a fly rather than a bee so they're actually a a parasitic fly as well so they're not great friends to our solitary bees that nest in the grass because what they actually do is they hunt down and and see solitary bees that might be nesting in the ground and they will sit outside their nests until the bees have come out Um, and then they will flick their own eggs near to the bees nest into the opening of the bees nest and when those eggs actually hatch out, the little grubs will work their way. They'll sort of wander into the bee's nest um, where they actually devour the supplies of pollen and the actual bee grubs as well. They'll eat them. But it's wrong to think that they're bad for our bee, um, so wild bee populations, because this is something that's been going on for millions of years so, you know, this is this is a normal thing that goes on. And the number of bee flies doing this um, compared with the number of solitary bees is, is minuscule. They won't have an effect on the bee population. It's just rather a gruesome practice, isn't it? It is. For an insect that's actually so cute when you see it, I hate to say cute, but it is. Um, and, you know, you could have one land on your uh, your hand and it, it wouldn't do you any harm whatsoever. But, yeah, it's, it's no it's no great friend to the solitary bees, I'm afraid. And the bees they parasitize, would they be things like minor bees? Yes. So it will be the um, the tawny mining bees, actually, are one of the ones that they specifically sort of watch out for. So you'll sometimes see bee flies hovering around above the grass and what they're doing then is is keeping an eye out for um, female bees that are coming out of their nests. So the tawny, tawny mining bee is a, is a beautiful bee. It looks like um, it looks like it's sort of got a foxy coat on. It's a it's bright red colour and they're quite large. They're about the size of a, a honeybee and you'll see them 
making these sort of little volcanoes in your grass and the bee flies will actually keep an eye out for those and when they see a nest they'll sort of make a point of flicking their eggs into or near to the opening of those but as you can imagine the chances of them actually getting any of the eggs near enough for them to wander into the the bee's nest is is quite low so in fact the bees actually have quite a sporting chance of not having their eggs or grubs parasitized yes very much so there's also another bee fly which um, if you do live near to a heath you might see a little bit later on in the year which is the heath bee fly um, which again if you see sort of sandy banks where um solitary bees are actually nesting into the sand you'll sometimes see them flicking their eggs into the holes of the of the bees there as well now jen although it hovers uh, it's not a variety of hoverfly is it no no it is actually it's a fly but flies unlike i mean it's people say to me well how can i tell that it's a fly rather than a bee but with the bee flies you can tell when you see them sort of landed, you can tell because they've got incredibly long legs. They've also got this long proboscis. But if you're really lucky and you see them with their wings sort of held back on either side, they only have two wings, whereas bees have got four. Uh, that's quite a difficult thing to notice. But when you get your eye in, you can actually tell the difference between the bees and the bee flies. They've sort of got a, a certain different little way of flying that um, you you get accustomed to and you sort of can pick it up. And and for you, Jane, this is one of the signs of spring, although it hasn't perhaps been a particularly good early spring so far. And tell me, does this little bee fly figure in your new book? It does, actually, yes. So it is in, um, I've just written a book called Nature's Wonders for the National Trust, and it was one of the wonders that I decided to write about because... I think it's sort of, um, I wanted people to try and connect with nature in a different way. So to sort of look at the things which are actually quite ordinary that they might see in their own gardens, but look at them in a slightly different way. You say ordinary, but of course, so many things, especially the small creatures uh, like the bee fly, have the most extraordinary biology and behaviour, don't they? They do. and And I think when you start finding out about some of these things it makes you look at them in a completely different way so you know even things like butterflies um, one of the first butterflies that you might see in the spring is the bright yellow uh, brimstone butterfly and when you start sort of knowing that that's one of the few butterflies that we have in the UK that hibernate over the winter and they actually have a, a form of antifreeze in their blood and you sort of think well that's that's amazing really um it's also possibly where the name butterfly came from because of the butterfly and it might have been one of the first you know it's one of the first butterflies that people used to see in the spring and that might be that might be where the name has come from once you sort of start finding out all these sort of amazing things about the creatures that are all around you um, not necessarily even rare creatures, but things that we might um, take for granted or that we've seen for years and years. It sort of makes you look at it in a different way. I'm wondering, Jane, uh, just how much of the material for your book you found in your own garden or your local surroundings? All of it. 
yes. <laughs> um, every single every single um, story in the book is because I have actually seen it in my own garden or in my own what I call my own patch. So it's sort of like a probably a, a two mile radius of where I live. So yes, I live on the outskirts of a village, um, a very ordinary village with fields and a few woods, uh, and everything that's in the book is is things that I've seen. It just goes to show, doesn't it, that if you keep your eyes open, you can see all sorts of amazing things, even small scale. Yeah, small scale, right up to the big things. I mean, actually, I've I've talked about storms and the changes in our weather patterns and things like that, and why they're changing and how spring is is starting earlier in the year. And also things like in the autumn and winter where you start getting the very long shadows. So looking at things when you're out and sort of noticing them um, and when you know a little bit more, it's sort of, I think, it makes it more interesting. So it can mean that going for a walk can take quite a while because you end up stopping every five minutes, but... Um, I think that's one of the things that's amazing about our nature. And now, finally, Jane, the title of your book is Nature's Wonders, Moments That Mark the Seasons. So I was wondering if you have a favourite wildlife season or moment. Oh, it's got to be spring. Yeah, for me, it's it's definitely spring. I'm not a... I'm not an autumn and winter person, and I don't particularly like baking hot summers. So spring, with all its new green leaves and the abundance of wildflowers and insects is is definitely my time. And definitely mine too. I used to be an autumn person, but nowadays, especially after a gloomy and wet and cold winter, it's spring that's my favourite. That was naturalist and regular BV magazine columnist Jane Adams. Her book is out now. It's called Nature's Wonders, Moments That Mark the Seasons, and you can get it at local independent bookstores and Waterstones, as well as various online outlets. And that's all in episode two of the BV podcast for March 2023. Terry and I will be back soon with episode three. So until then, it's bye-bye from me, Jenny Devitt. And until next time, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. <laughs>